pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for how good You are. You are the source of all goodness, all truth, and all beauty. Help us, Lord, to see You more clearly this morning as we look to Your Word. Help us to hear what You have to say. Let us be open to the Spirit. Convict us of sin if need be. Draw us into the truth. And Lord, help us to glorify You this morning as Your church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so I didn't do this last week because I was thinking, well, it's kind of a long bit to read and then to get into this, but I felt bad after not just actually reading the scripture first last week, so I thought, we're going to do it this week. So I'm going to read chapter 3, even though it's going to be a good chunk, we'll go through those questions, then we'll go to chapter 4 and read that and do those questions. So, Alright, Luke chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Ituria, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Anas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Uh, make straight his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teachers, what shall we do? And he said to them, Our teachers, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, uh, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, his winnowing fork in his hand to clear his threshing floor, and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all. He locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about thirty years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, 
the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Joseph, the son of Jodah, the son of Joannan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Matha, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonah, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Minnah, the son of Mattathah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Woo! <laughs> All right. Get my computer to wake back up. Of course, I'm sure I'll type a password. Not even, the, not even the computer to keep its eyes awake during that time. All right. All right, so, grammar questions. Um, who is head of the Roman Empire? Who's governor of Judea? Who is tetrarch of Galilee? And who is high priest when John the Baptist begins his ministry? So, emperor first. Who's emperor? Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius Caesar, who, by the way, is the second Roman emperor after Caesar Augustus. Uh, and then you, before Augustus, you had Julius Caesar, who's the one who kind of shifted the whole empire in this direction in the first place. All right, who's the governor of Judea? Pontius Pilate. Pilate, the infamous Roman official who later hands our Lord over to be crucified. Tetrarch of Galilee, who's that? Okay. Yes, the Gospel tells us that it's Herod, and this is Herod Antipas, to be specific, because there's this Herodian dynasty going on, so it's Herod Antipas. Um, and then how about High Priest? Yeah, and, and Anas, right? Um, Anas and Caiaphas are inter interestingly both listed here, and so here's kind of the story on that, if you're not never heard before. Um, Anas was the high priest from 6 to 15 AD, but he was deposed by Roman interference, uh, and Caiaphas, who was his son-in-law, was put into place by the Romans because they felt they could control him better, I think, is the notion, right? But because the Jews don't take kindly to Roman interference, they basically just decided to treat them both as the high priest. And in fact, in some ways, uh, Anas, even though he was the deposed high priest, still kind of had more authority than Caiaphas did. Okay? So it's this kind of weird situation where 
You shouldn't have two high priests, but you kind of do, right? Alright, so what is John's ministry? Verse 3, if you need a prompt. Prepare the way for Jesus. Okay, yeah. What was he preaching exactly? What did it say? A baptism of repentance. Yeah. Um, we'll, yeah, we'll get into this more in a little bit. What, what does John say will become of those who do not repent? Good. It's destruction. Yes, he gives a very scary image, right? Uh, axe laid to the root. Everybody doesn't bear fruit. It's going to be tossed in the fire. Uh, and you want to be a fruit-bearing person, right? Which means being a repentant person. Um, what are John's instructions to the crowd, the tax collectors, and the soldiers, respectively, who wish to bear fruit of repentance in their lives? So the crowd first. What does he tell them to do? Yeah, yeah. Which is, again, you can kind of relate this back to this, the simple command of loving your neighbor as yourself, right? But, but to, to make sure that you share with those in need with what you have. What do you say specifically to the tax collectors? Don't don't collect more than you should. Yeah, don't extort people. Don't yeah. don't tell them that, you know. If you are required to connect or to collect this percentage of whatever they make, don't don't add on to it and tell them, oh, that's for Rome, and really line your own pockets, right? What about the soldiers? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So don't don't threaten them, their well-being, so your own gain, basically. Be content with your wages. So again, all three of these commandments could be summarized by the command, love your neighbor as yourself, right? Uh, which is kind of a repeated theme we will see. What kind of baptism will the Messiah bring that is different from John's baptism? John said that he would baptize them with water, but Jesus, that Jesus would baptize them with the, with the Holy Spirit and fire. Yes, yes. Which, you know, we have to wait all the way until the, the book of Acts to really see this fulfilled in a pretty dramatic way in Acts chapter 2 as the Holy Spirit comes upon the believers in the upper room. Um, what occurs when Jesus is baptized? Spirit descends on him in bodily form like a dove. Okay, good. Anything else? Any other details? Heavens open. They heard the voice of God. Yeah. So this is this is you know a beautiful picture of the Trinity, right? You have the Father speaking from heaven. You have the Spirit descending, right? And you have the the Son on earth receiving the Spirit, right? So, um, you know, of all the Trinitarian heresies out there, you know, I think modalism is one that still catches on a lot today, you know, and the idea that, that God is just is one person that plays three different parts rather than being one God in three persons, co-equal, co-eternal, right? Um, and this is, a, this is one of the great areas of Scripture that you can really kind of show this distinction of person 
in the Godhead, you know, to say, here we got Father in Heaven, Spirit on His way down, and Son on the ground, you know, and, and so it's, it's a helpful teaching verse as we're working through the doctrine of the Trinity. So keep, you might keep that in mind as that question comes up at times. Um, I have some logic questions. So what is the significance of John's role concerning the Messiah? Why was his ministry so important? John's significant role that he played concerning the so you, you take, he says he came to prepare the way. Okay. Um, he's also fulfilling uh, the prophecy of Isaiah. Yeah. Um, and calling for repentance, which was also what, I mean, he was calling for repentance, and that's also what Christ was, was calling for. Good. Yeah. So in Malachi 3 1. It says, Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And then Malachi 4, 5 through 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Uh, Jesus also confirms that this, this interpretation of John as Elijah in John 11, 11 through 15, when he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept that he is Elijah, who is to come, he who has ears, let him hear. So um, he was playing a very important role of the, the herald coming before the king, right? Um, and so this would have been, especially in that day and context, would have been a familiar notion to people because literally before an, an official of importance would come into a town, they would send forth heralds before them and say, make yourself ready because, you know, the, the important person's coming. You need to prostrate yourself appropriately and all these kind of things, you know. So they get the gist, and what he's, they're saying here is that John has this role of coming before the Christ and making sure people are ready so that they don't miss him. Um, it's in light of that that it's, it's so interesting how many people do miss him, right? Uh, but but it, it's also interesting that, again, we see, we'll see this theme of where the people that you would expect to be the least excited about the coming of the Messiah, which is those who are in sinful practice right now, right? Are the ones who actually seem to be most receptive, right? And the ones who are at least viewed to be the righteous, and would think, oh yeah, they're eagerly waiting for this to happen, right? They're not so excited, right? And they're not willing to believe, and so there's kind of upheaval and turning things on its head, right? Uh, but this is John's ministry is to, is to get a hold of the heart of people and say, look, the king is coming. Are you ready? Are you ready? All right. So, what is the significance of John telling the people that God is capable of raising up descendants for Abraham from stones and that the axe is at the root? Why, let me put it this way, if, if there's any confusion, why is there this whole discussion about Abraham is our father, you know, and why, why is he saying don't, don't rely on that? Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. Anybody else have some thoughts? Yeah, say the the uh, the Jewish people have a tendency to have the view that their pedigree from Abraham made them uh, in the favor of God. You know, kind of regardless of how they behave. This is like we're children of Abraham, so obviously God is going to be gracious to us just because we're children of Abraham. Right. Even if we just continue in sin and don't repent. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So there's this kind of rest in the, on the laurels of who we were born as, you know, and we're, we're in the line of Abraham by physical descent, so surely we are God's people. Um, and here, John is challenging this assumption. Don't, don't say to yourself, Abraham is our father, we're good. We don't need to worry about anything. Um, and, and we're actually going to see in the next chapter, we're going to see Jesus play off of this kind of same theme in a little more pointed way that the people are going to react to. Um, but yeah, there is this, there's just this attitude of because of our lineage, we must be in good. We must be one of God's people. And John says, look, I can tell you right now, God can take one of these stones and make a child from, for Abraham, right? He doesn't need you, per se, you know? Um, so when Jesus was baptized and was praying, uh, well, we kind of went over this already, so, but yeah, this is this picture of the, of the Trinity. So let me skip to, verse, or to question four. Consider the genealogy given by Luke. Compare it to Matthew's genealogy in Matthew 1, 1 through 17. What's different about them? What do you think may account for these differences? Can you discern a different purpose for giving a genealogy for Jesus in Luke's gospel as opposed to Matthew's? So there's actually a lot of things that could get said here, but I'm interested to see what you came up with from, you know, Adventures and Odyssey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one is Mary's genealogy and one is Joseph's Okay. Okay. So there, you know, there is some debate on this point, but that is certainly, uh, you know, a good argument for that view that one is really following the lineage of um, of Joseph and one is following the lineage of Mary, and that definitely could be. What else might you have noticed though um, about distinctions between these two, or, or any thoughts about why that one might be done one way or one another? Uh huh. And one starts and goes all the way back. Okay. So start with Good. When it ends with Son of God. Okay. Yeah. So when we think about Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, what 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 is the audience of Matthew's gospel in particular? Do you know? Jewish people. Yeah, Jewish people, right? Um, and and Matthew's. Uh, lineage that he gives for the Christ starts with Abraham, who is what as far as Jews are concerned? It's like the father of everything, right? Like he is, this is where Jews really start, you know? Um, and so Matthew's lineage for, for Christ gives Jesus this kind of who's who of Israel, right? Showing that he is a real Jew and he is in the line of not only Abraham, but he shows he's in the line of David, right? He's fulfilling all these requirements that's necessary for the Messiah, Okay, and if you if you read through the Gospel of Matthew, you see Matthew's constantly doing things like this. He's constantly showing, um, you know, this was done so that it might be fulfilled what the prophet said, and he's so he's, he's lining up everything with the Old Testament prophecies to show that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. Um, and he also does interesting things like in Matthew. Do you realize, I don't know if you realized? Um, I heard this from a friend of mine. I thought it was really cool that there are five major discourses that Jesus gives in the Gospel of Matthew. 
uh, which could be kind of lined up in some way next to the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. And so in a lot of ways, what Matthew's trying to do is show that Jesus is the prophet like Moses. Okay? It's pretty cool stuff, right? So, but Luke, who's he writing to? Theophilus, right? Who is not a Jew, right? He's a Gentile. And in many ways, this gospel kind of comes across as a gospel for the Gentiles in general, right? Um, So there's a few interesting things we can note here. One, uh, he goes all the way back to Adam, which is, Adam is, is, is just the beginning of man, not of Jews per se, right? So this is all mankind's origin. And so he's, a, he's associating, I think, Jesus with not only just Judaism, right, but with mankind as a whole, which is an important point, okay? Um, but not only that, what's really interesting is that it, it does, it works kind of backwards, right? And it says uh, in verse 23 of chapter 3, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son uh, parenthetical comment, as was supposed of Joseph. Now, as was supposed, okay, the reader gets to be in on this a little bit, right? Well, who's really his father, ultimately? It's God, right? Well, then he rolls all the way through this genealogy and gets down to verse 38. Son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So at both sides, both bookends of this genealogy, you have a son of God and the son of God. All right? And what Luke is pointing to is that Jesus is the reboot of humanity. He is the second son of God. He's the second Adam, as Paul will call him at at points, right? Um, And so everywhere where Adam fails, Jesus succeeds. And so we know that Adam falls in temptation, right, in Genesis 3. And now what, what proceeds immediately, or what proceeds immediately after this, after this genealogy? The temptation of Jesus. Isn't that interesting, right? So now Jesus is going to face essentially what Adam faced. And he's going to come out a lot stronger, right? So... Um, I think this is just a pretty cool connection that, that he's putting in here is that you know you had one son of God who failed and made the whole race fall with him, right? And now you have truly the divine son of God who's going to come and he's going to succeed everywhere Adam failed. And all who place their faith in him will be in Christ as people have already been in Adam, right? So it's pretty cool. I like it. All right. Chapter 4. Let's read that. All right, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. You think, right? I would be hungry. All right. Uh, The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. 
If you then will worship me, it will be it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to, the, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is, this not, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, uh, that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the son of the Syrian. <clears throat> when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town, and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him, off, throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. <clears throat> And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had a had spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus, son of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with the authority and power he, comes, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he rose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house, now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with the high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, 
and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought, brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went to a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. All right, so how is Jesus described as he returns from the Jordan River? Full of the Holy Spirit. Full of the Holy Spirit. Excellent. Um, how was Jesus's fat? Or how long was Jesus fasting in the wilderness? Forty days. And what are the three temptations Jesus endured from Satan? Stone into bread, like we worship Satan, and <coughs> good. Yeah, turn a stone into bread, uh, worship Satan, and receive the kingdoms of the world, and then also to test the Father's love for him by hurling himself from a height. What does Jesus do each time in response to Satan's temptations? Quote scripture. And quote scripture. Where does Jesus uh, begin his public ministry? In Galilee, teaching in the synagogues in the different towns. What Old Testament scripture does Jesus teach in, teach from in Nazareth? Isaiah, and he applies it to himself. And what amazing thing does Jesus do in Capernaum? Verse 35. He casts out a demon, and not only does he do that, but he does it on his own authority, which is really weird, okay, if you understand what's going on here. So, um, one of the points that is worth making when it comes to Jesus' teaching, they're constantly astounded, because here he is speaking on his own authority. It was the common practice of the rabbis of the day to say, well, according to Rabbi you know, Gamaliel, right, or Rabbi Hillel, or whatever it might be the case, right, this is what this text means, you know? And so they were always referring to someone else's authority to make their points, because it was considered presumptuous for you to just interpret it for yourself, right? Um, which I think actually sometimes pastors get into this mode today, too, where it's like, You've cited so many different commentaries, you know, that, you know, did you actually come to a conclusion yourself, or are you just, just citing other commentaries, you know? Um, but regardless, that was the practice, right? So for Jesus to take of his own authority to interpret passages of Scripture, to cast out demons without reference to, you know, anything else first, you know, without, without asking, or even, he didn't even pray. I mean, in this case, right, he doesn't even pray and ask God to do it, right? He just does it, you know? Um, this is some crazy stuff that they're seeing here, and they don't know what to do with them. All right, so a major emphasis of Luke 4 seems to be the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' ministry. What does it mean for Jesus or a follower of Jesus to be filled with the Spirit? And I ask you to consider Ephesians 5.18 in your answer. 
What does it mean for Jesus or a follower of Jesus to be filled with the Holy Spirit? To yield control. Yeah. Yeah, so in Ephesians 5, 18, there's this kind of contrast. He says, Do not be filled with too much wine, for that's debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Right? So when you think about this, okay, what does it mean to be filled with too much wine? You're drunk. And when you're filled with too much wine, what's really in control? The alcohol, right? So don't do that, right? But instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, which is to say, instead of yielding your control to this substance that will mess you up and make you do stupid things, you know, yield control to the Spirit of God who will lead you into righteousness, right? Who will, who will uh, take control of your life in a good way, right? Not my will, but His be done kind of thing. Um, so what we see is that Jesus is operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He, even though he is God and man, he is yielding himself to the Spirit, yielding himself to the will of the Father. He's not there to do what he wants to do, per se. He's there to fulfill the will of his Father. Um, now, these temptations that he goes through, why might these three different temptations that Satan brings before Jesus be really legitimate temptations for Jesus in that moment. The first one's obvious. He was hungry. Yeah. You haven't eaten for 40 days, and you have the ability to make that stone bread? It's pretty tempting. Okay? Right? Yeah, so that's that's very, very clear. Um, and yet, he responds, man does not live by bread alone. He's, he's completely dependent upon, leaning upon the will of his father. Right? Uh, what about the next one? When you think about the second one, why might that be a legitimate temptation for Jesus where he's at? If he gives up, I mean, if he gives up to Satan, if he gives up his place essentially by worshiping, and he gives up all the pain and suffering, he's going to have to be one. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, we know that Scripture calls uh, Satan the ruler of this world and things of this time. So, so in, in some way, shape, or form, Satan does kind of have possession of these things he's showing Jesus. Um, and yet, rightfully, Jesus is really Lord over all these things. And yet, we've got we to gotta imagine his current situation. He has uh, condescended himself to leave the throne of God to come and be born a human and to serve the will of God and, and on our behalf. And so you can imagine that there is a certain sense in which the temptation to just kind of just shortcut this whole process and to have what really should be his in the long run anyway, in a, in a certain sense is a real temptation for Jesus because that's rightfully his. He should have those things, right? It's, it's understandable he would desire that. But he's not willing, of course, to go around the will of the Father and take the shortcut. Um, he's going to submit himself to the, the Father's will. He's eventually going to die. He's going to be raised again. And then he will be exalted above every name, right? And he will rightfully take hold of those things. But here Satan says, hey, why go through all of that? I'll just give it to you right now. Just one thing. Worship me, right? Tempting, but no, right? Um, third temptation. Why might this be a genuine temptation for Jesus? 
dots. Okay, this is quite it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> what? So this one was a little harder. A little one harder, okay. Um, in a way, he's um, kind of asking Jesus to prove that you're the Son of God. Okay, yeah. So I'd probably be uh, tempting, especially after Satan has um, prompted you to worship him. Right. You're saying, worship God. Show me your God's power. Just throw yourself off this cliff. Okay, good, good. What does Satan do here that he hasn't done before? What's his new technique? Yeah, he's reciting scripture to Jesus now. Oh, I see you like scripture. He's responded to me that way twice, you know. I can do that. <laughs> Have you ever thought about the fact that Satan is probably a better theologian than any man has ever lived? I mean, he has more orthodox theology than any of us. He knows for a fact who God is, what God has said. I mean, that's kind of a scary thing when you think about it, right? Like, when you're doing... Spiritual warfare, I mean, you're dealing with, like, the best theologian in existence outside of God himself, right? So, but, so here he is, he's quoting scripture to Jesus, um, and yeah, I mean, he's, he's, you know, prove it. But, but not only is it just prove it that, you know, that your God is real and there for you, but you can imagine the vulnerability that Jesus might feel, feel in this moment, especially he's preparing for this ministry, he knows what's before him, right? And, you know, in, in, Again, the, the dual nature of Christ is divine and human nature, but maybe in his human nature you could imagine him saying, like, I just, I need to know that the Father loves me and I'm secure, you know? I feel, you can feel very far from him at points, especially when he gets to the cross, right? Why have you forsaken me, you know? And so you could imagine that it is a real need in Jesus to feel that God is there for him, that he would catch him if he fell, you know? And so, again, all three of these temptations are very legitimate for Jesus, right? Um, and, of course, to get into this conversation, can Jesus really be tempted? I mean, he's God, right? What do you think about that? I'm just going to toss that out to you. I mean, so, because, you know, it, I've heard people say, these are, these are, he's not really tempted. I mean, he's got, he can't sin, right? So, what's the temptation of this? What do you think about that subject? I'm just curious. He's also fully man. Okay. So while he while he's able to resist the temptation, where and uh, with the perfect resistance that we can't reach, uh, he still experiences the temptation. Yes, he's God, so he's no, he's not going to sin. He's not going to give in. Whereas we do. Yeah. That's, that's what connects him with us. Is that we have he has experienced the temptation. Yes. Right. You so that, that's our hope. Yeah. Christ, but yeah. Yeah, I think sometimes what people do is they link the idea of temptation itself with sin. And so that's where they kind of want to say, well, Jesus couldn't have been tempted because to be tempted is sinful. And yeah, I think we have to look at this and say, that can't actually be the case, right? Now, there, there may be a very narrow line there, right, of entertaining that temptation becomes sin, you know? I mean, I don't but but there can be a legitimate thing where, look, this is something that rightfully you should want, you should desire, right? Um, you know, I, I mean, I, I think, you know, even with the temptations that, that young people face today, a lot of it amounts to wanting to love and be loved, right? And they misappropriate that and misuse that, right, in relationships they're not ready for and things like that. And so I think that a lot of times there's, 
there's legitimacy in the temptations that people feel, but they end up being abused and misused and warped and so on and so forth, and we give in to them, obviously, you know. Uh, but, but all that being said, yeah, I think it's important that we do understand that Jesus is really a man. He wasn't a pseudo-man. He wasn't a suit of a man that God stepped into, right? He was really man and somehow joined with the d- divine Son of God, right, in this inseparable but not confused way. And it's really hard to work through that sometimes. But nonetheless, everything that we've ever faced in, in struggle and temptation, Jesus knows, right? But because of his... Uh, because of his um, lack of the sinful nature, right? Which again is part of that, that genealogy. It's not actually doesn't have a human father. He's, he's the son of God, right? Uh, anyway, you know he's able to endure and uh, to refuse these temptations, but he really felt them, and I think that's a really important point for us to grasp. Um, so there is no point where you are struggling with a temptation that you really can't say nobody understands. At least one person understands, right? Um, and he stands before the Father making intercession for you. That's a big deal. Um, okay, so in Luke 4.35, Jesus commands the demon to be silent before casting him out. This happens also in verse 41. Why do you think Jesus silences the demons when they are declaring what is true about him? Because it wasn't time for him to be known. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's definitely a, a good thought, and I think I think definitely at least part of the answer is that you know we Jesus is just starting his ministry. He's got objectives, so to speak, to get through, um, and this can't get out of hand too fast, right? So uh, you you already see pretty quick that he you know, he'll end up having to withdraw from towns. Can't you go into towns anymore because people are following him? So you know, part of it may be this desire to kind of slowly move through things. Uh, any other thoughts? Okay. Yeah. I was going to say something similar. Like, do you want the first time that it comes out to be from someone who receives and they know the truth but don't actually worship him? Right. And so... Like you see in Mark several times when the demon comes, they come to him, they fall down, and they say what his name is, but they're not worshiping. Mm-hmm. And so would that be the first way he wants it to be expressed? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think both of those those answers together make a pretty good answer to this question. That you know, one, you know, Jesus has plans, and he doesn't want those to get put into warp speed necessarily. And then two, that he doesn't want to receive the testimony of demons. He wants uh, he wants this to be a thing revealed by the Father, right? So like later in you know when he's talking with Peter, I tell you flesh and blood and reveal this to you. My Father who is in heaven revealed this to you. That's the way he wants people to come to the knowledge of who he is. He doesn't need the testimony of demons. Uh, but it is interesting, right? That these demons they recognize him right away for who he is. Um, and although they do not worship him in the sense of adore him, right? You know they do very often fall flat on their face before him, right? And it's, a, it's kind of an early picture of this, when Christ returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the glory of God that Jesus Christ is Lord, right? So there will be a day when that's the action of everybody. Everybody. Whether in joy or dread, 
they will fall before the Christ and proclaim him to be who he is, the divine son of God. Okay. Um, so we already kind of talked about the, the, the rhetoric question a little bit there. Uh, let me ask you just any, any questions that you had while you were going through these two chapters? Anything that just stood out to you like that was just really cool? I didn't see that before. Uh, anything at all on those fronts? Where do we first see baptism happening in the scripture? So actually, um, it depends on how you want to look at it. I mean, so you, for instance, like you see like the cleansing of Naaman, which gets mentioned, right? In a sense, that's kind of a baptism going on there, right? So we know based off of uh, like Jewish commentaries, religious commentaries, that uh, baptism was a, a common ritual practice in Israel, um, and it, it people would baptize both just for, for cleanliness sake, so to speak, right? And they would also baptize for times of preparation for holy days and things like that. So when John shows up on the scene declaring a baptism of repentance, people get already what baptism is about, kind of, right? Like they already like, oh yeah, this is. This is some sort of preparative thing, you know, but it's the message that he attaches with it specifically that gives it its support. So he's saying this is a baptism for repentance, it's a baptism of preparation specifically for the one I'm proclaiming to come after me. Um, and so, although you don't really see baptism so much in the Old Testament like we typically think of it, though you can certainly point to examples that are, that are at least symbolic of the notion, you know. Uh, and, and like I said, by the first century, it has become a fairly typical Jewish practice for preparation of different things. Um, so does that answer your question? Right, cool. What else? Anybody have another thought or question? I read the passage several times of just where Christ starts his, uh, or where when he's preaching in Nazareth, and it's I had always assumed he was talking about, no, this is uh, my hometown, I'll understand. I mean, it struck me a little harder this time, but no, he's saying the Jews aren't going to accept, accept me. At the beginning of his ministry, he knows that the Jews are not going to be very accepting of him. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, so yeah, and actually, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to make a point on that line and kind of forgot to. Um, so, so John makes the statement, you know, the, the axe is at the root. Okay, you're going to be thrown to the fire if you don't bear fruit and keep you with repentance, right? Don't presume that just because you have Abraham as your father, you're good to go. Okay, and then Jesus gets up and in his first uh, time into Nazareth, and he takes the scroll of Isaiah, basically declares, "Hey, the time of salvation is here, and it's me, and it's you, and let's do this thing, kind of, right? You know." And uh, they're really, oh wow, how just generous and nice of him to say these things to us. And uh, but then he kind of turns the corner. And he starts talking about how God has shown grace to who during the, the during the time of the famine. Well, to this this widow who is a Gentile, right? And also he brought cleansing of leprosy to Naaman the Syrian, who's a Gentile, right? And so Jesus is saying, guess what? Salvation is here for you, and also for the Gentiles. And that's the thing they can't tolerate. That's the moment they turn on him and say, let's go throw this guy off a cliff. I mean, how amazing, right, that they have gone, like, from from zero to 100 in two different directions, like, just like that, you know? Oh, this is so gracious. This is, he's, this is, 
isn't this Joseph's son? Didn't he grow up around here? Yeah, 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 I like this guy. You know, and then suddenly it's just like, oh no, he thinks uh, God isn't going to save us just because we're Jews. Yeah. So you're, you're seeing this development of the same theme that starts starts with John the Baptist's preaching. Don't presume your salvation just because you're a child of Abraham in the physical descent. God isn't concerned about physical descent. He's concerned about those who are children of the promise, those who believe like Abraham believed, right? Uh, which, you know, when we think about what we do with baptism with our children, right, we're calling on our children to believe like Abraham believed, right? We're continuing that same message. Abraham believed and was circumcised, and then his children were circumcised, right, and called to believe in light of that sign, that covenant sign, just like Abraham already had, right? And that just continues into the new covenant with baptism, right? That we are pointing people to have the same faith. This is what Paul says in Romans 4, the same faith that Abraham had, right? Um, so it's not about physical descent. It's all about whether you are a child of Abraham by faith in Christ. Uh, and so this, this is where they get pretty frustrated with him. Any other thoughts or questions on these two chapters? Yeah, I just thought it was interesting to see the, I mean, like you were talking about, about how there was different reactions to different teachings. And I think tend to think that it didn't turn more negative reactions till towards the end. But in reality, there was that all throughout his ministry of those who, I mean, there I, I knew that there was those who did not hear and understand. But I guess I didn't see as much how much there was actual serious opposition to what he was saying. It was so controversial. Yeah. Yeah, and again, you know, uh, Luke writing this to a Gentile uh, audience, you know, is, is, is highlighting the fact that Jesus' ministry was not exclusively for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, right? This, this, and how, how audacious that, you know, to get that angry at just the fact that the offer extends beyond them. It's not that the, authors, the offer isn't to them, it is, right? But it goes beyond them, and that's what's so infuriating, that they're not the, the perfectly unique, special people of God, that God doesn't care about those other people, you know? They get upset about that idea. Um, one other thing that I just want to point out, I'm seeing at the beginning of Luke 3, and then also at the beginning of Luke 2, I just want to note the detail in both of these passages. So in Luke 2, uh, starting verse 1, it says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each in his hometown, our own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child, Okay, so just, just know all the details that's being there. Then look at the chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria, and uh, Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Anas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So I just want to point out, like, this is not how you start a story you're making up, okay? Um, you know, when, when you think about, have you ever read Greek myths or anything like that? You know, maybe the Norse mythology, things like that. Pretty cool stories. I mean, I think they're interesting. But, you know, 
they're not rich with detail, if you've noticed, right? Um, they're, they're more in the vein of once upon a time, you know? And this is not what Luke's up to, right? Luke is very carefully naming people, places, events, right? He's anchoring these things historically. Um, and one of the reasons I love the Gospel of Luke is it's, it's so strong apologetically on this front. Um, you know, a lot of people, I think, they just they, they fail to see that Christianity is really unique in this way. When you look at the world's religions, um, you can look at the Quran, you can look at the Hindu Vedas, you can look at you know any religious text you like, for the most part, and what you're going to see is it's devoid of this kind of thing. It's devoid of historical people, places, events, and anchors by which you might look in to see if this thing's true or not. They're, they're usually, largely, they're just wisdom sayings or some sort of top-down command, like, you know, maybe proverbial statements, things like that, you know, which uh, obviously the Bible has proverbs as well, but, but they, it just, they don't have any way of actually investigating the truth of the matter. And how do you know if Buddhism's eightfold path is true? Well, you've got to die how many number times before you can be reincarnated to get to Nirvana, you know? You just can't look into that, right? Um, I only know of one religion, one religion that has tried to mimic the Bible in giving very specific dates and details and people and places, and it's gone very poorly for them, and it's the Mormons. If you read the Book of Mormon, you have this kind of structure of things and events and people and places and battles and all kinds of stuff, right? And it's, it's, it's shot them in the foot because you can look... They claim this all happened in North America, and there's no proof of this civilization, right? It just wasn't there, you know? Something's really cool. You could go on eBay right now, and you could say, type in first century Roman coin. Now, it's going to be pricey, but you could buy one. They're out there, right? It's really cool. Go to the eBay and type in the first century uh, coin from one of the people found in the Book of Mormon. Silence, right? So it's just one of those things, you know, that um, I like to point this out that Christianity is unique on this front because there's a number of things that Christianity does that no other religion does. Number one is that it anchors things to history and then it begs you to look into it, right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, that Christ appeared to 500 people, to small groups, to individuals, last of all to him, right? And he goes on to say that if Christ is not raised and your faith is dead, or you're dead in your sin, your faith is in vain, um, and basically, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's all for nothing, right? So he says, look, I dare you to look into it. And when he wrote that, he wrote at a time when these people were all still alive, you could go ask them. There's a really bold claim to make in the day, right? Um, so when you're, you're sharing your faith with people, just encourage them. You know, there's good reasons that if you're just kind of a general spiritual seeker, there's good reasons to start with Christianity first. Because it, it gives you threads to pull at and says, I dare you, look at it, right? It's true, and you can look into it and find out that it's true. And that's pretty cool stuff. So I just like to point out that Luke does a lot of that. Luke is very meticulous in his detail and showing that here's all these historical anchor points that you can look into, right? Um, and it's pretty cool. So, all right. Any other thoughts as I'm closing? One for me. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was uh, later on, a few years later, um, someone invited me to church and then um, got to church himself and 
Anyways, that's a long story. But um, so as I read through all the names and stuff, I, I come back to the first one. I don't know that. So I'm stumbling through it all the way, reading it out loud with the name and stuff. But it's so much more rich. I understand covenant theology. You know, well, look, the promises, see how it comes all the way, which is all the way back. God promises the faithfulness all the way back. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, nothing gets dropped along the way, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Good. Well, let's pray. We'll close the sentence. God, we thank you for the time we have. We thank you for your word. I uh, thank you for the, the faithful witness of, of people like Luke and others you used to write your holy word, and then the many faithful brothers and sisters throughout the centuries who have preserved it and who have paid dearly their own blood in many cases, Lord, to preserve your word. We thank you, God, for the witness of the church and especially the work that your spirit has done amongst your people. We thank you, God, for your goodness and grace and your faithfulness. And we ask, God, that you would help us to see your faithfulness in our lives, even today, Lord, that the work of your Holy Spirit, uh, Lord, it is not done. You are still moving in us and through us. We pray, God, that you would give us opportunities to share the good news of Jesus with people who need to hear. God, we pray that you put us in the path of people that are your Spirit is already working on and they are prepared to hear and receive the gospel. Um, or Lord, that we might at least plant seeds and water them along the way for a harvest that might come later. Help us to be faithful. Lord, help us to know that you are with us. Lord, help us to grow closer to you as we hear your word and apply it to our lives and seek to obey it and submit to you in all things as Jesus, your son, has done. Help us to do as well. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.